Hello, friends, and welcome to the Capital City Christian Church Podcast. My name is Chris, and I'm so glad that you're tuning in with us. If this is your first time listening or you'd just like to reach out, feel free to shoot an email to hello at capitalcitychristian.org, and I'd be glad to talk with you. We're in a message series about the book of Colossians, which is a letter about a big Jesus for life's big problems. And this week is about parenting. If you've got kids, you know how difficult it can be to just be a parent, even more so to be a godly one. We're going to look at what the relationship between a kid and a parent should look like if we follow Jesus. Let's dig right into this week's message about parenting kingdom style. Here's our senior minister, Dr. Stephen Duck Patterson. Good morning. Really glad you're here. Two things before I get started. First of all, right after this service concludes, John's going to be up here. He's going to be our host at the very end of the service, and he's going to transition directly into a very, very short congregational meeting. You know, once a year, we vote on next year's leadership and next year's budget. That's going to happen in both after both of our services, just for a couple of minutes. So if you're a member of Capital City Christian Church, want to participate in that, just hang for just a couple of minutes. The other thing is, today is Veterans Day. And uh, I don't know if you guys realize that uh, it began at the end of World War I. The hostilities ended on the, or supposed to end officially on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, 1918, 100 years ago. And, uh, and so the next year, Woodrow Wilson decided we're going to we're going to celebrate that. And it was dedicated to honor those who served and dedicated actually to the cause of peace. Was, And then later on as wars continued, they just made it a Veterans Day for all of those who served. So anybody in our congregation who has served, why don't you stand up if you don't mind, if you served in our military in any fashion. Would you, don't, do you mind standing up? Thank you, guys. Why does it move us when guys serve? Why do we honor them in this kind of a fashion? We were created in the image of God, which means that sometimes things that move God move us, right? It's part of the image of God inside of us. We're moved by courage. We're moved by the willingness of some to go into harm's way for others. You know why? (laughs) Because it's an echo of the greater story when God sent his own son into harm's way for us. Most of the things that stir us are echoes of the greater story. Now these guys are willing to serve even if it meant going into harm's way to protect those they love. Jesus was willing to go into harm's way to protect those who were still sinners, who didn't love him at all. So today we get to honor and respect our veterans. And today we get to worship our God. Isn't that cool? Now, for the last couple of months we've been working our way through a little letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to some Jesus followers in a town called Colossae. We've got three more weeks in the series, including today. We've been calling the series A Big Jesus for Life's Big Problems. I actually stole the title because I liked it. The first half of Colossians talks about a big Jesus, who Jesus is, what he did for us, what he means. Second half of the book, it's really practical. What does it mean to do life as a follower of a big Jesus? And the two halves are connected. And that's what I need you to see this morning. 
Now chapter 1, back in chapter 1 of Colossians, it contains one of the most incredible descriptions of Jesus that you can find anywhere in the Bible. The Apostle Paul says that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. In other words, the God that we can't see with these eyes, we can't touch with these hands, because he's transcendent. Paul says Jesus is God making himself visible and touchable and hearable. Paul says he's supreme over all creation, which means that Jesus has authority over everything that is. It means that he rules everything. He rules us. He rules you. In fact, Paul says this Jesus is actually the creator of everything. In other words, when the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that was Jesus. And he says that all things were actually created through him and for him. That's the theology. That's who Jesus is. That's how big he is. Therefore, therefore, Paul says, this is weird, therefore, children always obey your parents. For this pleases the Lord. So when a kid obeys his mom and his dad, it pleases Jesus, who is the visible image of the invisible God. The one who rules over everyone, including over every parent and every kid. In fact, the one who made every parent and every kid. Back in chapter 1, Paul keeps going. He says, Jesus is before all things. He existed before anything else, which means he's eternal. We're going to celebrate his birthday next month. But in reality, there has never been a time when Jesus was not never will be a time when he is not. And Paul says that in him, in Jesus, somehow everything holds together. In other words, without Jesus, everything we know of would actually fall apart. Do you buy that? Paul Jesus calls this Jesus the head of the church, which means he's the head of Capital City Christian Church. We're going to get to vote. He's the head of this church. Head of every other church, all of them. He calls him the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn from the dead, which doesn't mean that Jesus was the first one to be raised from the dead. We know others were raised from the dead before Jesus. He did it, in fact. But it means that when Jesus walked out of his tomb, he owned death. He ruled death, including our own. In fact, Paul says God, literally God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live inside Christ. And because of all that, Because of who he was, Paul says, Jesus had the ability to reconcile man to God by dying on a cross in our place for our sins. You buy that? We do. Therefore, Paul says, therefore, (laughs) fathers don't aggravate your kids or they'll be discouraged. Which means, perhaps, that a father does aggravate his kid, if a father does discourage his kid, he's disrespecting the eternal one, the one who holds everything together, the one who has complete power over our life and death, the one who gave his life to save ours. Huh. See, Paul thinks they're connected. Who Jesus is and how we live. He thinks they're connected. We think they're connected too. And it makes sense. Listen, think about it this way. What if Jesus really was God in a bod? What if that's true? 
What if Jesus really was the creator himself? What if he really does reign supreme over every single one of us right now, whether you bend your knee to him or not? And what if the quality of our life here on earth is going to be defined by whether we do life with him, for him, his way? And what if eternal life itself is at stake? What if? Wouldn't knowing about Jesus and following Jesus be the most important thing ever? Would you agree with that? And wouldn't the biggest gift any parent could give any child would be to encourage their kid to bend their knees to Jesus and to give their life to Jesus? Wouldn't that be the definition of great parenting? I'm serious. It is, isn't it? And what if, what if there's a connection? What if when a kid struggles to obey his parents, what if that rebelliousness is going to make it harder for that kid to obey his God? What if when parents who are supposed to be Jesus followers mess up our kids, when we provoke them unfairly and discourage them, remember our kids are his kids first, what if when we parent poorly, we actually push our kids away from Jesus? When connecting Jesus, our kids to Jesus, is our single biggest job as parents. Hmm. See, our culture celebrates rebels, right? Nothing matters more to us Jesus-following parents than to raise life-loving, God-honoring, Jesus-following kids. Nothing matters more. And sometimes when we let our kids revel in their disobedience, we make it harder for them to bend their knees to God. When we, parents who claim to be Jesus followers, mistreat our kids, we make it harder for them to bend their knees to God. Our biggest job as God-honoring parents is to do whatever we can to connect our kids to God. And listen, teaching our kids to respect and honor their parents is a huge piece of teaching our kids to respect and honor and obey God. So we're talking about laying a groundwork so that our kids can come to know Jesus as the Lord of their lives and to do life with God, for God, God's way. And guys, a blessed life in this world and an eternal life in the next is what's at stake. So don't blow this stuff off, please. So here goes. Children, always obey your parents because that pleases God. Now listen to what it doesn't say. It doesn't say children obey your parents when it feels right, when you think they're being fair. It doesn't say children obey your parents when you don't have any better options. It doesn't say children obey your parents when you want something from them, all right? It doesn't say children obey your parents when your friends obey theirs. It doesn't say children obey your parents most of the time which would be kind of like a, a, a groom saying to his bride, I promise to be faithful to you most of the time, right? Or saying to God, I promise to keep seven or eight of your commandments most of the time. How's that going to go for you? And guys, this idea of children obeying their parents is a big deal. It's a big deal all the way through the Bible. In fact, it's rooted back in the Ten Commandments. Commandment number five, honor your father and your mother, and you'll live a long, full life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, I suppose that could mean if you don't honor your mom and your dad, your life's going to be short because they're going to take you out. 
right? That's a possibility. And I'm only partly kidding in that. Because listen to some of these laws. Exodus 21. Anyone who strikes, anyone who hits his mom or his dad's got to be put to death. Holy cow. Two verses later, anyone who dishonors, some translations, anyone who cusses his father or his mother must be put to death. Wow. And if the parents aren't up to it, over in Deuteronomy, if you have a stubborn, rebellious kid who's not going to respond to your discipline, you're supposed to take him to the elders of the village, and they will assign some guys to stone him to death. Pretty serious stuff, isn't it? If these laws were enforced today, we wouldn't need a student pastor like Nate. We wouldn't need a children's pastor like Lisa. Maybe not even a preschool pastor like Jessica, because most of our kids would be dead. And even though these kinds of penalties are never found in the New Testament, and there's good reason for that, these penalties are not continued in the New Testament. This whole, this whole command to honor and obey your parents is actually quoted, repeated six times in the New Testament, which is incredible. It means that a child honoring and obeying their parents is a big deal to God. And it's countercultural, isn't it? It's so countercultural today. You see, rebellious kids are celebrated in our world. Hollywood loves to make sitcoms and commercials that feature degenerate, sarcastic kids manipulating their stumbling, bumbling parents. And when our kids have issues, we like to point fingers at the failures and the sins of their parents. And most all of us tend to get way more absorbed in taking care of number one than looking after the ones who birthed number one. Too often we kids think that our needs and our rights are way more important than the needs and the rights of the ones who birthed us. But we're supposed to be different. We're Jesus followers. I do not propose that we start executing our kids for sarcasm, although the thought has crossed my mind a few hundred times. But fundamentally, doing life God's way hasn't changed. The path to a better life in this world and eternal life in the next hasn't fundamentally changed. Jesus called this the first commandment with a promise. Honor your father and mother, then, then you'll live a long, full life in the Lord, the land the Lord your God is giving to you. The two are connected. Maybe when we fail to cultivate parent-honoring kids, we're also failing to position our kids to receive God's promises and God's blessings. So let's dig a little deeper. Now maybe the first thing we need to notice is that here in Colossians, the word that he uses for children here, this is to children in Christian homes, it's primarily used for younger kids, for minors. For us older kids, the word is honor. For the younger kids, the word Paul uses, it's obey. All of us are supposed to honor our parents no matter how old we are. You buy that? I was supposed to honor my mom until the day that she died. I'm still supposed to be honoring my dad right now. Which means I listen to him and I show them respect. But there's a difference between honor and obey. I listen and I show respect but I make my own decisions now. When I was a minor in their home, my job was to obey my parents. By the way, if we adults don't honor our parents, we make it way more difficult for our children to honor and obey us. Do you buy that? 
Our kids are way more influenced by who we are than by what we tell them. So why is this big, a big deal? Why is this so important, this obedience? I mean, some of it's obvious. When kids are a little tiny, it's just for their safety. Don't touch that. It's hot. Don't put your tongue in that. That's going to light you up. Don't let go of my hand. Why? Because I told you so, right? Sometimes, guys, that's all the explanation a parent needs to give. Because I told you so. A parent's job is to protect their kids whether they're going to understand why or not. But more than that, learning to obey is important because every kid needs to learn to respect others and to respect authority. Do you believe that? Life doesn't revolve around you. It doesn't revolve around your kids. And if you want your kids to play well with others for the rest of their lives, obedience to parents is one of the first steps in civilizing the little barbarians. But mainly... Teaching our kids to obey is huge because our biggest job is to encourage our kids to do life with God, for God, God's way. Our biggest job as parents is to encourage our kids to bend their knees to Jesus, our creator, our king, our Lord. And if we don't teach our kids to obey and honor and respect their parents, we make it more difficult for them to honor and respect and obey our God. This is big. Now, I don't have time to unpack these, but I want to say just a few things about what teaching obedience means and what it doesn't mean. Some of these may sound a little controversial to you. So be it. Maybe because we're not very good at teaching obedience anymore. Teaching obedience is not about counting. You know what I'm talking about? Don't make me count to ten. Eight. Nine. Nine and a half. Nine and three quarters, nine and seven eighths. Don't push me. I mean it. <laughs> guys, when we count, we teach our kids to obey when they choose or when they have no other options. Teaching obedience is not about applying what you might call reverse psychology. Maybe your parents tried reverse psychology on you. They knew you were a little rebel. So they said, I'm ordering you, do not eat your vegetables. All right? So defiantly, you eat your vegetables. And the parents are thinking to themselves, aren't we smart? We win. Nah, you're just raising a terrorist. <laughs> Teaching obedience is not bribery. You can tell when a kid is being bribed because they turn into a negotiator. All right? Time to go to bed. Well, what do I get if I go to bed? The appropriate answer to that is you get to live another day. <laughs> But usually it doesn't go that way. What do I get? Do I get ice cream? No. No ice cream. But you can have a candy bar. Bribes don't teach obedience. Teaching obedience is certainly not about flipping it around and obeying your kids. You've seen that happen in grocery stores. Some kid is throwing a tantrum, right? Screaming, yelling, sounds like he's being tortured. It humiliates you. And maybe your kid, you right? And because kids are smart enough to wait till there are witnesses around to shame and humiliate and embarrass you. You see, they wanted the candy, and mom said no, right? And so he makes a scene until mom caves in to her little Ben Laden. <laughs> kids get their parents to obey them by throwing a tantrum. It's twisted. Now, teaching obedience isn't about counting, reverse psychology, bribery, or caving in. 
Old school guys, Jaden Dobson, pretty sharp old guy, he puts it like this. He says, teaching obedience means, first of all, that you got to define the boundaries. The kids got to know what's right and wrong before you start enforcing those boundaries. And once you've defined the boundaries, if your kid challenges them defiantly, then you have to respond decisively and you win. I don't think parents ought to be choosing their battles. If a kid makes it a battle, the parent needs to win. Third, he says, make sure you distinguish between your kids' mistakes and their sins. Kids mess up. We all mess up. Sometimes kids mess up more than we adults do. You know why? Because they're just learning to think and they're just learning to do. If it's a mistake, you can correct it, but don't be mean. If it's a rebellion, if it's a sin, you've got to stop it. Fourth, avoid impossible demands. Make sure that they're capable of doing what you require. I told you to stop wetting the bed. You're three now, right? Seriously? I told you, you got to get straight A's. I told you, you were supposed to score 30 points tonight. Fifth, always let your kids know that you love them. That is so huge. Obedience has to be grounded in love. Teaching obedience has to be bathed in love. Truth is, if you really love your kid, you're going to set some boundaries and you're going to enforce them. Sixth, remember, you're the parent, you're not the friend. You're the parent, you're not the friend. We're supposed to be adults, not one of the kids. God-honoring family is never supposed to be a democracy. Dobson has some more. Parents need to work together as a team. They need to attack the problem, not the person, stuff like that. But I just want to mention one more that I think is really, really big. If you want your kids to respect authority, you'd better live that out yourself. You better show them how. Guys, if you want your kids to obey your wife, then you better show your kids that you respect her too. Ladies, if you want your kids to honor and obey their dad, then you better be honoring his dad too. And above all, if you want to teach your kids what obedience is all about, you'd better be obeying God. Even when you don't understand him, even when you don't agree with him, because he's God. This is huge. Parents, it's on you guys to teach your kids obedience, to enforce it. It's not my job, pastor of the church. It's not the school's job. It's not the government's job. God gave you the job. It's got to be done. We were not born with an honor-respect gene. We were born basically as barbarians. And the job of a parent is to civilize their little barbarians. All of us were born basically egocentric, self-centered, self-absorbed. And we're going to continue battling that stuff until the day that we die. So our job is to teach our kids that they are not the center of the universe, that they are children of God, all of them, and they are loved by God, all of them. Our job is to teach them courtesy, respect, and how to surrender, especially to our God. Kids, you cannot be honoring and obeying God if you are not honoring and obeying your parents. You can't. The two go together. But, but, Paul puts the next verse in because parents sometimes cross the line, even we Jesus-following parents. We actually make it harder for our kids to honor and obey God. 
So Paul goes on with this. He says, fathers. By the way, when he says fathers here, he's not just talking about guys. This goes for you mothers too. It goes for grandparents who are in parenting situations. It goes for teachers, whoever else is parenting their kids. He says, parents, don't aggravate your kids or they'll become discouraged. Now, I don't think that means that a parent can't tease their kid like Steve did this morning, that we can't tease our kids and grandkids. I hope not. I think teasing a kid, embarrassing a teenager is one of a parent's greatest delights. It is cool. It's fun. And if you do it right, it doesn't discourage them. What the Apostle Paul is talking about is denigrating your kids, degrading them, forgetting that they're God's kids first. It means that we're not supposed to do anything that's going to push our kids away from God. Because our biggest job as parents is to connect our kids to God, if we can. So don't do those things that are going to push them away from God. Believe it or not, we get hung up on the kids obey your parents part. Back in Paul's world, this is the part that would have been controversial. Kids don't provoke, or dads don't provoke your kids. That would have been highly controversial because in Paul's world, dads were practically gods in the family. Your kids were your possessions, kind of like your land, your cows, your wife. A dad could choose, not a woman, but a dad could choose whether a baby would live or die. Oftentimes, if it was a girl, he'd set her outside to die. If a child had a deformity, a a dad sometimes would choose to have that kid drowned. A dad could punish his kids as harshly as he wanted, work them as hard as he wanted. He could even kill them if he wanted without any kind of recourse. If he had a debt to pay, you could sell a kid to pay the debt. Dad ruled. Which is kind of the opposite of our world in which kids rule, which is equally horrible. Today, a lot of kids are stubborn, defiant, disobedient, rebellious, and oftentimes they're celebrated for it. Often in our world, even our government backs them on it. And as Jesus followers, sometimes we excuse them for it. They're just kids. It's what kids do. It's who they are. We expect our kids to buck authority, to break our rules, God's rules, our relationships, and our hearts. That would have been a real problem back then. There was a book back then that they used to read a lot. It's called Ecclesiasticus. That's not Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. This is another book a lot of the Jews at this time took very seriously. It's called Ecclesiasticus. Jews took it seriously. Here's some of the stuff you find in it. If a man loves his son, whip him often. It says if you pamper a child, the kid's going to terrorize you. If you play with him, he's going to grieve you. It says don't laugh with your kid or you're going to have sorrow with him. It says give your kid no freedom. Don't ignore his errors. It says, bow down his neck in his youth, beat his sides while he was young, or he'll become stubborn and he'll disobey. It says, make his yoke heavy so that you may not be offended by his shamelessness. Holy cow. I hate to be that guy's kid, wouldn't you? And then the Apostle Paul comes along. And he's speaking for Jesus. And he says, fathers, don't aggravate your kids or they'll become discouraged. Wow. That was a bolt of lightning in his world. Don't goad your kids to resentment. Treat them with respect. Because they're children of God first. And your first job is to connect your kids to God, if you can. 
So how do we break those rules? How do we provoke our kids to anger? What do we do that actually discourages them? What do we do that actually makes it harder for our kids to bend their knees to God? What do we do that pushes our kids away from the blessed life that God meant for them? Let me suggest a few of the parents that we Jesus-following parents make, how we provoke our kids to anger, how we discourage them, how we make it harder for our kids to bend their knees to Jesus. Ten things, very quickly, I'm just going to fly through the list. Sometimes we parents are way better at criticism than we are at encouraging. If you're a parent, correction is part of your job. But if all you ever do is tell your kid what they're doing wrong, you're messing up your kid. Number two, sometimes when we scold them, we actually cross over into berating them. Sometimes we attack the, the person and not the problem. You're just a screw up. You're just a liar. You're just a lazy bum. Come on, parents. Attack the problem. But never forget that your kid is God's kid first. Be careful how you talk to them. Some parents even assault their kids verbally. They cuss at them, call them names, make fun of them, humiliate them. It's our job as parents to connect our kids to God. That junk's going to push them away. Four, some parents actually assault their kids physically. Now, I know this is provocative, but I'm not against a spanking. But physical punishment can easily cross over into abuse, can't it? And it is a sin to physically abuse your kid. Worse than that, it can push them away from their real father, their God. So if you're going to spank, make sure you got control of your temper first. Five, sometimes we discipline without instruction. Sometimes kids don't know why they're being punished. If you're going to punish a kid, they need to know why. I know sometimes kids claim they don't know why when they actually do. I'm not talking about that. But if the goal of discipline is ultimately correction, correction requires some instruction. Six, worst of all, Sometimes parents discipline without love. That's awful. We have got to love our kids, and they've got to know it. Our kids have to know how much we love them and how much God loves them. Discipline without love can drive them away from us, and it can drive them away from God. Seven, unreasonable expectations, impossible demands, setting the bar too high, that's abusive. We need to remember sometimes that our kids are just kids. Sometimes we've got to allow our kids to be just kids. Eight, double standards. You know what I'm talking about. Do as I do. I say not as I do. And there are legitimate double standards that parents can set. I mean, I don't have to go to bed when my kids have to go to bed. There are TV shows that you can watch that they can't within reason. But when you tell them not to lie and you do, When you tell her to respect her mama and you don't, when you send your kids to church and you blow it off, you're messing up your kid. A couple more. I suspect you could add a bunch of others to the list. Number nine, you ever been absent even when you're present? Your body's there, but no one's really home. One preschooler said, my dad lives here, but he doesn't sleep here. I mean, I just said it wrong. Um, My dad doesn't live here. He just sleeps here. Sometimes it takes more guys and ladies than just being home. Sometimes your kids need to see that they are more important to you than your phone or your TV show or your nap 
or your hobby or whatever. Last one, number 10. You can provoke your kids to anger and discourage them by refusing to admit it when you're wrong, by never repenting of your own sins. A little honesty is not going to bring a parent down in their kids' eyes, and it will teach them how to bend their knees to God. So what's your most important job as a parent? To get it across? It's to connect your kids to God however we can. To do whatever we can to teach them to do life with God, for God, God's way is best. To position them to receive God's blessings in this world and eternal life in the next. Which is why, children, obey your parents, for this pleases God. And fathers, don't aggravate your kids or they're going to become discouraged. Our kids don't need perfect parents. If they did, we'd all be host. But every single one of our kids needs God-honoring, Jesus-following parents. Everyone, every child of God deserves God-honoring, Jesus-following parents. They don't need perfect parents, but they do need you. And guys, it's never too late, never too late to start doing it God's way. Some of you guys look back with a whole lot of regret because you made a lot of mistakes as parents. I sure have. All of us have, if we're smart. God's really good at grace. God is really good at restarts. And He's really good at fixing what we have broken. Ask His forgiveness. Ask His guidance. Ask His help. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. Then we're going to sing a song. During that song, it may be that there are those here who just need some prayer. A couple of us are going to be down front, some of the staff, some of the elders are close. We'd love to pray with you. Maybe that there are people here who've been kind of drifting around. You don't have a church home. You'd like to make Capital City your home. We'd love to have you. If he's the Lord of your life, you want us as family, you're welcome here. And it may be that there are those in this room who have not yet bent their knees to Jesus, which is the start of the blessed life in this world and eternal life in the next. If you'd like to come down and talk to one of us, we'll be down here up front after the service. I'll make my way to the Connections Room. Love to talk to you in there. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we need your grace. We need your wisdom. We need your grace because we mess up a lot. We need your wisdom because sometimes we don't know what to do. We just pray, Lord, that you help us to be children of God, standing tall in this world that so desperately needs you. We love you dearly. We want to honor you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.